Welcome to MTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Sweeping sanctions against Russia, President Biden announcing new measures targeting over 500 people and entities as the world marks two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Senate Democrats in Kyiv. That's after a foreign aid package with $60 million for Ukraine stalls in Congress. What Majority Leader Chuck Schumer promises to do upon returning to the U.S. Former President Trump and Nikki Haley facing off this Saturday in the South Carolina Republican primary. Voters weigh in ahead of the matchup. President Biden walking a tight rope on immigration, trying to appeal to different voting blocs. A look at how that could affect the swing state of Nevada. A nationwide recall of more than 120,000 Chinese-made gun safes. That's over reports of faulty biometric locks. And in one case, a six-year-old child was able to gain access. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. President Biden has announced more than 500 new sanctions against Russia. That's as the war in Ukraine enters its third year and in the wake of opposition figure Alexei Navalny's death. Biden said the sanctions target those involved in Navalny's imprisonment and Russia's financial sector, defense industry and procurement networks. Russian President Vladimir Putin, who's already sanctioned, isn't directly targeted this time. The U.S. is also imposing export restrictions on around 100 entities supporting Russia's military efforts. The sanctions package is part of the administration's ongoing efforts to limit the Kremlin's revenues and hamper Moscow's ability to source materials for its war. The move is taken in partnership with other countries. The U.K. yesterday announced sanctions on more than 50 individuals and entities. The European Union on Wednesday approved its own package of sweeping sanctions, banning nearly 200 entities and individuals accused of aiding Moscow. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warns of dire consequences if his country is left without aid from the U.S. He told Fox News that other countries in Europe would also be affected. It's tragedy. It will be tragedy for all of us, not only for Ukraine, not only for Ukrainians, for all Europe. And you will see that they will go. Putin will never stay, will never stop. He will go through Eastern Europe uh, because he wants it. The Senate recently passed a $95 billion foreign aid package that includes $60 billion for Kyiv. But it's facing opposition from House Republican leadership over the lack of border security measures. Zelensky says he's spoke with President Biden and Congress members about Ukraine's need for high-range weapons. He says they all understand that such weapons would help Ukraine significantly in its fight against Russia. This comes as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is leading a delegation of senators to Ukraine today. Schumer says the delegation of Democrats wants to show Ukraine, NATO and Europe that they have America's support. Schumer said once the senators return to D.C., he'll pressure House Speaker Mike Johnson to bring the aid bill for vote. And four people have been charged in transporting suspected Iranian-made weapons on a vessel that was intercepted by U.S. forces in the Arabian Sea last month. This is the same operation which two Navy SEALs were killed. We reported on that. 
A criminal complaint unsealed yesterday alleges that four people with Pakistani ID cards were transporting missile components for the type of weapons used by Houthi rebels. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland pledged to use the full authority of the Justice Department to, quote, hold accountable those who facilitate the flow of weapons from Iran to Houthi forces. Mohammed Palwani is facing the bulk of the charges. Three others also charged with providing false information. U.S. officials said Navy SEAL Christopher Chambers slipped and fell while trying to board the intercepted boat on January 11th. Another SEAL, Nathan Gage, in Nathan Gage Ingram dove in after him. Both were killed in the operation. And Chinese police working on an island nation about 1,000 miles from Hawaii. Kiribati is a strategically important country, and it's Hawaii's closest neighbor in the Pacific. The nation of 115,000 residents controls one of the biggest exclusive economic zones in the world. It also hosts a Japanese satellite tracking station. Kiribati officials told Reuters that Chinese police are working with local police there and assisting in a crime database program. The country hasn't publicly announced the policing deal with China. China has been making inroads into the Pacific region. Kiribati switched, from, switched ties from Taiwan to Beijing in 2019 with the country's president encouraging Chinese investment in infrastructure. And in 2022, Beijing signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands, another Pacific nation about 2,000 miles off the coast of Australia. Chinese hackers exposed. A massive leak of documents from Chinese security company iSoon details apparent hacking activity and spy tools the company is allegedly linked to the Chinese regime. For a closer look, we're joined by retired Marine Corps Colonel Grant Newsham. Grant is also a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and author of When China Attacks. Grant, what do the documents in this leak tell us? Well, it just tells us what we've already known for an awfully long time, and that is that the Chinese have a very widespread, thoroughgoing, systematic uh, cyber uh, assault going on the United States and the rest of the world as well. Uh, the scale of this just cannot be overstated, but this is nothing new. I think one thing you're going to find out, or you'll see, is that there'll be an effort to say, well, this is just some renegade or rogue provincial officials in China who are behind this, and the central government knows nothing about it. No, this is entirely directed by Beijing. Uh, but one can't overstate, really, what a threat this is to uh, America and the rest of the world. And how do you know this is entirely directed by Beijing? <laughs> I'm sorry, I just can't help that. Nothing happens like this in China uh, without uh, the full knowledge of the center. The center. Uh, it just doesn't happen. You know, if a regional uh, entity was to get, or a lo local entity was to get out of control or do something that was not wanted, they would suffer very quickly and it just wouldn't happen. Uh, I'm sorry for laughing, but I've just been so immersed in this for decades that uh, someone would have to prove to me otherwise. Sure, yeah, and at the same time, it's not something um, many people in the US commonly know about, um, though it is becoming more commonplace. Um, coming back to America, what threat to Americans was exposed here? Well, the danger to every bit of our infrastructure, it's just not just critical infrastructure, not just the water, the sanitation, electricity, the financial networks, but everything right down to your household appliance, uh, to your computer systems where you, if you've got a router that was made in China, will stand by for trouble when the time comes. And as I said, the time Chinese have had 
decades to insinuate themselves into our entire system. And I think we saw yesterday when the some of the cell phones were out in the United States. Remember how people got pretty uh, antsy about that? Uh, and that was just a little taste of what is, is doable. Uh, so we, we live in a society today where you have got to have access to this technology. And since it's vulnerable, you can imagine the problems that's going to cause if it's cut. And also try to fighting a war, try defending our friends in the Pacific or elsewhere when we have our own infrastructure shut down. Uh, we say, our, the, for example, the cranes in our ports cannot load ships to send supplies to Japan, to the Philippines, to Korea. That's just one example. The cranes, of course, made in China, Chinese software, and you know you got to hand it to the Chinese what they've been able to accomplish. And at the last minute, finally, uh, the FBI and some others are waking up, but it's as if they discovered gravity. And how significant is this leak when it comes to exposing the Chinese Communist Party's um, cyber espionage tactics? Well, it gives a lot of good detail. And as I said, there's a geographic scope to this and the nature of the targeting uh, is, is very instructive. And it's not just the going after government secrets, but commercial secrets, just about everything you can think of. It is like this giant vacuum cleaner sucking up information around the world. And, and as I said, the, the Chinese have the real advantage of scale. And that's any number of people, any number of resources, any amount of money to apply to this. And we spent so much time pretending that, well, they weren't our enemy, that they didn't mean us ill. They just wanted to be like another big version of Canada. Uh, but that was never the case. Uh, and this is a huge advantage um, if you're going to try to dominate or defeat an enemy. Imagine if we could do this to, to China. Uh, they would be in bad shape. Now, you mentioned they're, they're just sucking up everything like a vacuum. Um, why is that? Why are they just kind of taking everything in without discrimination? Oh, it's sort of the, the Chinese way of doing things, um, not just in the, the cyber world, but you, know, you try to amass everything. There may be some way to profit from it later on, uh, but you just want to uh, take it in. Some would say that's the sort of a manifestation of sort of the Chinese experience over the last 5,000 years. Uh, but say so you can never have too much information when it comes to uh, this sort of warfare. And you, so you never know what's going to be useful to you in the future. And if you've got it, you potentially can put your enemy at a, a real disadvantage. All right. And lastly here, Grant, given what we're learning about Chinese hacking through this leak, what needs to be done to counter the Chinese regime's uh, cyber warfare activity? Well, of course, you need to be able to do to them exactly what they can do to us. Uh, that's a prerequisite. And hopefully our uh, ruling class has given us those capabilities, though one wonders. Uh, but what you do need to do is to, what you, whatever you call it, decouple or just get Chinese hardware, Chinese software out of our systems. Uh, there's simply no way to live with it. And that needs done. And this is sort of a yanking out and replacing that is going to be have to be, have to be done on a very large scale. Uh, and that is the only way to be safe from it. But we can defend ourselves, but also we do need to be able to go on the offensive so the other side realizes, well, they're going to suffer as much or more uh, as we would. All right. Colonel Grant Newsham, senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and author of When China Attacks. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. 
A recall of over 120,000 Chinese-made gun safes. The Consumer Product Safety Commission made the announcement on Thursday. It came after reports that the safe's biometric lock feature failed, and a six-year-old boy was able to get inside of one of them. The safes are sold by four companies, Bulldog Cases, Machir, Mautech, and AwSafe. Through online marketplaces and company websites like Amazon, Walmart, and others, no injuries from the defects defect have been reported so far. The affected American companies advise customers to stop using the biometric feature immediately. They note that customers should only use the safe's physical key when storing firearms and can contact them for free replacements. Senator Marco Rubio is sounding the alarm on the danger of a possible Chinese cyber attack. He warned on social media that the widespread U.S. cell service outage yesterday is significantly smaller than what such an attack could do. Tens of thousands of people on Down Detector and elsewhere complained that their AT&T or Cricket service was out on Thursday. AT&T, which owns Cricket, confirmed the outage. By the afternoon, the company stated that about 75% of its service was restored. Rubio said he doesn't know what caused the outage, but said it would be 100 times worse if China launched a cyber attack on America on the eve of a Taiwan invasion. The Republican senator says such an attack wouldn't just involve cell service, but would also affect power, water and bank systems. Coming up, President Biden's border conundrum. How to appeal to diverging views on illegal immigration within his own party. How this challenge is playing out in the battleground state of Nevada. And NVIDIA is seeing a meteoric rise in stock value as well as demand for its advanced AI chips. And DD Business host Don Mott joins us with that update and more after the break. Two Republican candidates left in a high-stakes race you don't want to miss. Watch it with us in the action and at the Data Hub on The Nation Decides 2024, the South Carolina primary with Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer. Live on February 24th at 6 p.m. Eastern on NTD News. Hunter Biden is set to testify before Congress. A committee staff member told NTD that the president's son is scheduled to appear before lawmakers as soon as next week. Hunter Biden will testify before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committee. He's likely to face questions about his dealings with Ukrainian and Chinese companies while his father served as vice president. Lawmakers want to know what level of involvement then-Vice President, then president Biden had in his son's business dealings. The deposition comes as House Republicans continue their impeachment investigation into President Biden. But Republican Congressman Scott Perry on Thursday raised doubts that the House would move to an impeachment vote. He said that there is evidence against Biden, but added it might be hard to impeach him with the slim majority in the House. President Biden has repeatedly denied having a role in his son's business dealings. And voters in Georgia are casting their ballots during the state's early voting period, which began on February 19th and ends March 8th. 
In the state's Republican primary, Trump is currently leading. According to data from the polling website 538, Trump has a substantial lead with around 81%, while Haley trails with 17%. But some early voters in Fulton County are not choosing the former president. Here's what they have to say. And we don't need Trump as president because there's nothing but chaos behind him. I think that Donald Trump has um, a lot of attention in the media and people don't understand um, his limitations. And I think that it will undermine our position globally in almost every way. Um, it's important to get my vote out. Um, it's important to get the right president for the United States. Former President Donald Trump and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley will face off in the South Carolina primary on Saturday. Some analysts say it will be Haley's, first, Haley's last stand despite her vow to stay in the race through Super Tuesday. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on what voters are saying. Danielle Dantzler is an IT manager. The Charleston residents as she's voting for Haley. I think it's important that we have someone from South Carolina so that we can maybe get a little more attention on the national stage. Um, I like her platform. I don't agree with all of it, but I think the couple things that we disagree upon, we can agree to disagree. Autumn Galvez is the owner of a body products business. She's leaning toward Trump. Trump will probably be like the primary pick for the Republican Party. I think he just has this big effect on Americans. I feel like he just stands up and fights for us no matter what. I think he's kind of proven that no matter how much backlash he's gotten. Derek Zito says he won't vote for Trump no matter who he's running against. But uh, the only reason why I would go out and vote is because I think Donald Trump is a threat to everything and everybody and uh, anyone but him. And if it comes down to him and Biden, it would be Biden. If it comes down to Haley and Biden, it would be Haley. As the day gets closer, many voters are voicing concerns about specific issues and priorities. Lisa Karstarfin is an attorney. She's skeptical about Haley's stance on abortion. Um, well, Nikki Haley's a woman, um, although I don't necessarily think that she properly represents women's issues. Um, sometimes she does. She's much more reasonable than your regular um, current Republican slate. Um, but I think Joe Biden will probably represent how I feel better. Gabrielle Daniels, a nurse, says she'd like to see a woman president. My preferred candidate would be Nikki Haley, to be quite frank, because I really just want to see, I really want to see what would happen if a woman ran our country, considering that men have been running our country for, uh, since the beginning, really. Braylon Parker, a customer service representative, is on the fence. So yeah, I am undecided, and it is from lack of faith in the system. Um, I'm a double minority, I'm black, I'm a woman, so the candidates, you know, well, I guess no one's like chosen yet. A candidate losing in their home state can be a fatal blow to a campaign. Opinion polls show Trump far ahead, but Haley has vowed to press on regardless of Saturday's outcome. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And one political science professor in South Carolina says he's expecting Trump to win big, but believes the margin of victory could play an important role in Haley's campaign. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the details. Kirk Randazzo, political science professor at the University of South Carolina, says South Carolina has a very diverse set of voters. He says candidates have to tailor a message that can appeal to a broader range of the electorate. 
and that's why the state has been successful at predicting the eventual nominee of either party. And that makes its status in, in the primary queue incredibly important. Randazzo says Trump, leading by almost 30 points in recent polls, will most likely win the state, but Haley keeping the margin of victory to 10 or 15 points could bear fruit for her continued campaign. If she can keep it relatively close, I think that gives her enough momentum to keep the donations rolling in that will carry her to Super Tuesday. Otherwise, according to the professor, the pressure for her to drop out of the race will rise even more. Randazzo says Haley has presented a clear message that could catapult her to the White House were she to win the nomination. Because of all the issues and complaints with Joe Biden, his age, inflation, things along those lines, I think Nikki Haley is an incredibly solid candidate in the general election. Fifty delegates to the Republican National Convention are up for grabs in South Carolina. Next up is Michigan, which will be held next Tuesday. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A record meth bust at the border. U.S. Customs and Border Protection says officers seized 6.5 tons of methamphetamine valued at over $100 million. The agency says it's the largest meth seizure recorded at a port of entry. The seizure happened last week at the Camino Real International Bridge between Mexico and Texas. A CBP field operations officer referred a tractor trailer for secondary inspection. The rig's manifest was for piglet drying agents. A spokesman for Homeland Security Investigations says the seizure kept the drugs from making it to Houston, saving an untold number of lives. President Biden is facing challenges on immigration. He's trying to appeal to the Democrat voter base that's in favor of protecting illegal immigrants, while also courting others who want to reduce illegal crossings from Mexico. Biden took office in 2021, promising to reverse the immigration policies of former Republican President Donald Trump, but has since toughened his own approach. That could dampen enthusiasm among more liberal Democrat voters. Trump and other Republicans support stricter border controls and have criticized Biden's policies as overly lenient. The issue is a crucial one in the battleground state of Nevada. Nearly a third of the state's more than three million residents are Hispanic. Vote tallies show Biden narrowly bested Trump in Nevada in 2020 with the help of Latino voters, but polls currently show Trump with an edge in the state. And joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to give us the latest updates from the business world. Don, what do you have for us today? Okay, so a number of things uh, to go through today, and I wanted to start off with NVIDIA. The company is having just an incredible quarter, it seems like, um, and that is shown in its most recent uh, earnings report. So uh, the company's profit grew to nearly $12.3 billion in the three months ending January. Now get this, this is a gain of 769% uh, year over year. This result helped bring the company's full year profits up more than 580% uh, from the year earlier. And I mean, this is just incredible. I mean, the numbers um, say for itself, uh, the company gained $277 billion in value uh, uh, on Wall Street yesterday. And this is one of Wall Street's largest single-day day gain in history, and NVIDIA shares were up 16% at market close. S&P 500 and Dow Jones Industrial Average both surged at, uh, to close at record highs as well, uh, partly 
due to uh, how, how well NVIDIA is doing and because investors are piling into technology stocks because of this uh, AI frenzy, if you will, that we're experiencing right now. And traders exchanged uh, $65 billion worth of NVIDIA shares uh, yesterday, accounting for almost a fifth of trading in the S&P 500. Uh, so, I mean, if you have a 401k or uh, anything similar to that, yesterday potentially was a very good day for you. And NVIDIA says demand for its advanced AI chips continue to exceed supply. And speaking of AI, we spoke also about this yesterday with Google and all the news surrounding its Gemini chatbot. Um, it took action on that or saying that it took action on that. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, so a quick update. Uh, Google is pausing its artificial intelligence tool, Gemini, uh, and its ability to generate images of people. And of course, this was after it was uh, blasted on social media uh, for apparently what happened uh, for producing racially inaccurate images. Uh, and I talked to you guys about this yesterday as well, showing people of color in place of white people. And Google said in a post on X yesterday that they're working to address these issues and uh, with the image generation uh, feature. And while they do this, they're going to pause the image generation of people and re-release an improved version, hopefully uh, in the near future. And I think this blunder maybe potentially is showing how AI tools are still struggling with the concept of race uh, in general. Uh, OpenAI's DALI image generator, for example, uh, has taken heat for perpetuating harmful racial and ethnic stereotypes at scale. And Google's attempt uh, to have uh, Going to this space seems to have missed the mark or backfired a little bit, um, and it's making it difficult for the AI, AI chatbot, uh, seems like, at, at the moment to generate images of white people. And Gemini, like uh, other AI tools like ChatGPT, is trained on vast troves of online data. So experts have long warned that um, the potential to uh, replicate the racial and gender biases uh, baked into that training because of the information that it's being trained on. And staying with technology, Don, what do you know about this cyber attack that happened yesterday? Yeah, yeah, that cyber attack, let me uh, just give a quick update on that as well. Uh, one of the nation's uh, largest uh, conservative um, groups, uh, uh, the, the pharmacy um, United Nation saw, saw a cyber attack yesterday. And uh, it's, it's, it's now trying to resolve the issue. And uh, I think as of right now, uh, the, the cyber attack only lasted from Wednesday to Thursday. And uh, probably it's not going to continue up to today. So I think uh, we should be good uh, on that front. Wow. Oh, well, thank you very much, Don. Always great to have you here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Don. Right. Uh, and we have some breaking news, President Biden is on television giving a speech right now. Let's tune into that. Fence bridge between Kentucky and Ohio. Mm -hmm. By the way, tens of Maybe thousands thing is of in trucks blue. and commerce cross those bridges every day. And we're finally getting it done. We're building the nation's first high-speed rail line in California and Nevada. And I want to thank Governor Newsom for his leadership in that. And by the way, I'm not sure how many people leave L.A. can do it in two hours to get there, or whether they're going to come back or not to <laughs> Las Vegas. But all kidding aside, we're making the biggest investment ever in climate 
climate change, ever. I visited your states working together to respond and build and boost resilience to extreme weather. Spent an awful lot of time, and I make, I, I'm not complaining about it, I'm just pointing it out. An awful lot of time with a lot of you governors over the last three years dealing with the impacts of bad weather. I've flown over your states, particularly in the southwest and the west and the northwest, uh, for I don't know how many times, and helicopters looking to timber burned in the ground. More, we've lost more timber, we've lost more forest than the entire state of Maryland makes up in land in square miles. We're building cleaner, more reliable power grid, promoting clean energy and advanced manufacturing industries of the future, made in America, made in America. You know, one of the things that I didn't know, maybe you knew, but I'd been around a long time in the Congress, I didn't know when they passed the legislation relating to the right of labor to organize in the 30s that there's a provision and said if the president provides, if, this, if the Congress gives the president money to invest in America, to build things in America, to spend money in America, to spend money for America, they should do two things. One, they should hire Americans to do it. And two, they should use American products. Well, guess what? Didn't happen in Democrat or Republican administrations for the longest time. And so guess what happened? We no longer, you know, we, we're no longer disclosing uh, just in factories in your states. What, what, was what was happening the last 20 years in all of our states, including my state of Delaware? People were, the business decide labor's cheaper overseas. So we export the factory and import the product. Well, we're building factories here in America now, not overseas. So far, my Invest in America, Jan, has attracted $650 billion, $650 billion in private investments, bringing factories, jobs back home, your states, and, and, and restoring a sense of pride. How many times you see people in your states had that factory where for maybe it only employed 500 to 2,000 people? And for generations, people, family after family, showed up and worked in that factory, and all of a sudden it's gone. It's overseas. But now they're coming back. They're coming back, and with the pride is coming back. For example, I was with Governor Hochul in Syracuse, New York. You know, Micron is investing $100 billion to build chip factories. Yeah. An area the size of 40 football fields. Well, across the country, over the next 20 years, we're going to create 50,000 jobs across the semiconductor supply chain. 50,000 jobs. And by the way, if you work in one of their fabs, you know how much you make? You don't need a college degree. $110,000 to $112,000 a year. Folks, look, we've ignited a manufacturing boom with your help. Semiconductor boom, a battery boom, a jobs boom. All along the way, with your help, we've cut, federal, we've cut the federal deficit as well. We cut the deficit by doing all this by $1 trillion so far. The biggest reduction in history in deficit reduction. I've signed legislation that's going to cut the federal deficit by another $1 trillion over the next decade. It's clear we have the strongest economy in the world, and that's not hyperbole. We have the strongest economy in the world today. Nearly 15 million new jobs created, a record. Growth is strong. Wages are strong. Rising faster than prices. Inflation. 
Coming up, one of the nation's largest conservative conferences enters its second day. Prominent Republicans speakers this year focusing largely on the 2024 election. NTD's Jack Bradley brings us the highlights from CPAC. And families in Ukrainian village are longing for missing loved ones as their future remains uncertain two years into the war. At least five people are dead and many more are missing after a residential fire in Spain. What we know so far about the tragedy after the break. Welcome back. Ukrainian communities away from the battlefield are still scarred by two years of war with Russia. Families grieve and long for missing loved ones. Classrooms and workplaces lie empty and future lives remain uncertain. In the quiet, frozen winter months, the small Ukrainian village of Lozovatka can feel a long way from the nearest battlefield, some 60 miles away. But here, 220 miles southeast of Kiev and across Ukraine, the now two-year-old war with Russia continues to upend everyday lives. Alona Onushchuk lost her husband, Serhi Aloshkin, in fighting in the eastern city of Bakhmut at the end of 2022. His grave lies alongside 10 others here. They're among tens of thousands estimated to have been killed or injured in the 24 months since Russia's invasion. As the village council said, we did not expect that there would be so many of them, to the extent that we could have made an alley of heroes from the very beginning. Onushchuk, who quit her job when she became pregnant, now cares for five-year-old Anelina while she struggles to cope with the loss of her husband. This is in the city of Mariupol, and this is in Azovstal. For Tatiana and Yuri Terletsky, daily life now involves a lot of waiting for news about their son, Denis, who they say was captured in the port city of Mariupol in May 2022. This is very difficult. It is 2024 and we don't have any news. I don't know anything about my son. You might not notice when looking at me, but deep down I worry too. Sometimes he comes into my dreams. I want to see him again. I want him to come back home soon. Ukraine says around 8,000 soldiers and civilians are in Russian captivity. Another 3,000, mostly from the military, have been freed in prisoner-of-war exchanges. But many families have been left to ponder the fate of captured relatives. As the war stretches into a third year, Kyiv is looking to mobilize up to half a million more Ukrainians, draining villages like Lozovatka of family members, friends and colleagues. Five of farmer Oleksandr Vazolchenko's 30 workers were called up to fight. He worries this and reduced grain exports caused by the war threatened the long-term viability of his business and, ultimately, Ukraine's ravaged economy. In general, many specialists and mechanics from our community were mobilized. Our equipment needs repair. We need to cultivate the land. And we haven't trained young people yet. We will work on this. Before the war, I had a quiet life, I had hobbies that I loved, and I had friends. But I lost many friends since the war began. Many of them proved who they are. Strangers became like relatives to me. For teacher Yulia Samutuha, war changed her life and the people she knows in Lozovatka. The conflict is never far from her thoughts. She's on maternity leave and spends her spare time these days volunteering. 
packing up supplies for the front lines. Vitamin mixes, dried fruits with nuts and honey, and an anti-inflammatory remedy, these come in handy for the soldiers at the moment. Many lives have been turned upside down in villages, towns, and cities across Ukraine. Anastasia and Oleksandr Korobchunko escaped from their home in Luhansk region to the relative safety of Lozovatka. The couple is among 3.7 million internally displaced Ukrainians. Another 5.9 million remain displaced outside Ukraine. The couple say their plans are on hold until their future and that of Ukraine is clear. When you don't know what will happen to you tomorrow, it's very hard to even think about living with a child in these conditions. I would really like to have a full family and give birth to a child. But we do not know where we will be tomorrow and what will happen to us tomorrow. And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from the UK, Germany and other European countries. A British-born woman who joined the Islamic State in Syria lost an appeal today over the removal of her British citizenship. The British government took away her citizenship on national security grounds in 2019. That was shortly after she was found in a detention camp in Syria. She argues the decision was unlawful because, in part, she says British officials, British officials failed to properly consider whether she was a victim of human trafficking. The argument that was first rejected by a lower court in February last year and the Court of Appeals in London rejected her appeal today. The woman flew to Syria in 2015 with two school friends to join the terror group. She was 15 years old. While there, she married an ISIS fighter. The European Union will base its new anti-money laundering authority in Frankfurt. Germany welcomed the decision today, saying the agency will help fight financial crimes across Europe. Eight other countries had applied to host the authority. Frankfurt won by far the most votes, with Madrid and Paris coming second and third. Without an EU authority to control dirty money, Brussels had previously relied on national regulators to enforce its rules, but member states did not always cooperate fully. Former Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz is on trial for perjury. The trial is entering the last day today. Kurtz had to leave office in 2021 after prosecutors placed him under investigation on suspicion of corruption. Kurtz, who then quit politics, denies any wrongdoing. The coalition he formed remains in power. A verdict could soon be reached, and a criminal conviction could kill any chance he has of returning to politics. At least five people are dead and over a dozen are missing after a fire in Spain. The fire engulfed two residential buildings in Valencia yesterday. Residents fled onto balconies where some were rescued by firefighters. Spanish soldiers were also deployed and medics set up a large tent to help injured people on the scene. The cause of the fire was not immediately known. News reports said it might have spread rapidly due to materials used in the building's structure. High temperatures inside the buildings are preventing more emergency workers from entering. Spain's Prime Minister was at the scene, expressing his condolences to the families of the victims. The priority now, as we have also heard from the authorities, is the search for victims and, without a doubt, to try to guarantee the safety of the public service workers. We are here to help in any way we can to provide services. 
one of the largest gatherings of Conservatives in the country. The Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, continues today with a new round of speakers. NTD's Jack Bradley joins us live from day two of the event. Jack, give us the latest there. That's right, guys. We are here at CPAC for the second time uh, where speakers are speaking today. We've heard from many conservative leaders yesterday speak on issues that mattered most to them. Uh, many issues, uh, thousands of people are here right now, but many issues that matter to them include immigration, illegal immigration. That's the top one on voters' minds here. Another one is energy and even anti-Semitic incidents rising on college campuses. Now, with one thing that was raised here that's really interesting was um, if Moses were here today, would he go to Harvard? Many other topics were raised here at this event, and let's take a look at some of those now. All right, well, um, many other people are going to be speaking here as well later on today, and we will bring you live updates from here. Trump is going to be speaking on Saturday, and as far as that goes, uh, it's the same day as the South Carolina primary. So um, he's leading Nikki Haley by a wide margin here. And um, Nikki Haley was a no-show at this event. She was a headliner last year. Many people here are pro-Trump, um, we can see. And many people speaking here could be Trump's potential running mates even, including J.D. Vance, um, Nick, uh, not Nikki Haley. We have uh, Christy Nome and many others as well. Um, we'll bring you live updates here through Saturday right on the ground outside of D.C. Back to you guys. All right. Thank you, Jack. And what do George Washington, the world's biggest stock market place and one of the first terrorist attacks in the U.S. have in common? Wall Street and Broad Street. We take you there after the break. Welcome back. NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory captured images of the sun emitting a strong solar flare. Yesterday, imagery shared by NASA showed the flare, which is seen as a bright flash in the upper left part of the sun. NASA says these solar flares are intense releases of energy from the sun. They can impact radio communications, electric power grids, navigation signals, and pose risks to spacecraft and astronauts. The flare from yesterday is an X-class flare, which is the most intense, according to NASA. And New York City has so much history. For one, the story of the great American melting pot advanced through the opening of Ellis Island in the late 19th century. And not to mention how the U.S. Custom House provide, it provided nearly all the money in the federal budget before income taxes. NGD's Kevin Hogan went out to a well-known intersection in the Big Apple that carries huge significance to give us a snapshot of American history. Take a look. I'm here in Lower Manhattan at the corner of Wall Street and Broad Street, which is said to be one of the most historic places in possibly the entire United States. Behind me you see a statue of George Washington, which marks the spot where he took the oath of office, and a building there is where the Bill of Rights was hammered out. We're going to explore more of the history of this area with Pauline Fromer, the co-president of Fromer Guidebooks. It's where the Continental Congress met during the colonial era to rail against the Stamp Act. And it was also a place where trials took place. And there was a man named John Peter Zenger who was accused of slandering the governor of New York. 
and what he wrote was true and so the jury acquitted him even though in those days you weren't allowed to say anything bad about government officials. There was no freedom of the press. Right across the street is the New York Stock Exchange. It's twice as big as Federal Hall with Corinthian columns twice as high and elaborate carvings showcasing the power of this economic icon. This was the place where in 1792 the first stocks were exchanged in New York City. But back then they did it under a button tree, which is why there's that tiny scraggly tree over there. To this day, they always have a button tree growing there to commemorate the first stock traders. The New York Stock Exchange is the oldest exchange still in existence in the U.S. and boasts the largest equities exchange in the world. Alongside great financial and governmental strides, this area holds a tragic event in history. One of the first terrorist attacks in the country occurred in 1920 here outside of the J.P. Morgan building. J.P. Morgan insists that this building not be fixed. He wanted the world to know that even though he had been attacked, he couldn't be hurt. Uh, so he allowed these pockmarks to stay on the building, and, and they're still here today, even though this attack occurred in 1920. Wow. So what was the extent of the blast and the impact that it had on the building? Oh, the blast was terrible. I mean, there was nothing left of the carriage. There was nothing left of the horse except its horseshoe, and 31 people uh, were killed. This is such a, a thickly walled building that that's it. That's all that happened to it. Uh, they tried to hurt him, but they couldn't do it. I update this book every year, and in this book is a self-guided walking tour that takes you all over this area and gives you the history. Just a couple of blocks away is the, is the Federal Reserve Bank, which actually has more gold in it than Fort Knox. In fact, when 9-11 happened, half the police went to that building to protect it because there were conspiracy theories that that is why 9-11 was happening, that somebody was trying to get the gold in that building. Some passers-by share their thoughts. This man speaks about the feeling of being where the first president took the oath of office. It makes you feel small, in a way, um, because of how significant places can be and how um, one person can play, be so influential in shaping a country. Another reacts to learning about the Wall Street attack of 1920. To be honest, I'm lost for words because I never even knew this, but uh, it's very iconic. Uh, it means a lot. Others speak about how it feels to be at such a notable location. Well, it's a very important place. Uh, well, I come from a small place uh, called Costa Rica, so it's very important, uh, democracy and all the important it has all over the world. Definitely, it feels very important to be here um, and to be a part of history. So, yeah, it feels awesome to be here. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Thank you for staying with NTD News today. We will have more of CPAC on NTD Newsroom at 2 p.m. Eastern. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley says the U.S. can do better than two what she calls 80-year-old candidates. That says she makes a last push in South Carolina to rally support ahead of tomorrow's primary. 
Cell phone data analysis is casting doubt on the timeline provided by Trump prosecutor Fannie Willis on her relationship with special counsel Nathan Wade. The details revealed in a new court filing. Former President Trump and Nikki Haley facing off this Saturday in the South Carolina Republican primary. Voters weigh in ahead of the matchup. Sweeping sanctions against Russia, President Biden announcing new measures targeting over 500 people and entities as the world marks two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu presents his post-war plan for Gaza. Find out more about his long-term goals for the region. And in an unusual reversal, a sports video game is offering college athletes money for their name, image, and likeness instead of the NCAA. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. In Georgia, a new revelation in the probe into District Attorney Fannie Willis. An analysis of cell phone data suggests special, special prosecutor Nathan Wade visited the DA at her condo 35 times before they claimed their relationship began. That's according to a court document filed today by former President Trump's legal team. The finding raises doubts about the timeline of their relationship and the veracity of their testimony. An investigator's report reveals that Wade's phone connected to towers near Willis's condo on multiple occasions. The defense is trying to dismiss the election case by arguing a conflict of interest due to the prosecutor's romantic ties. The judge is considering the contested claims about when the romance started. If it's proven that their relationship started earlier than claimed, that could constitute perjury and they could face removal from the case. And presidential candidate Nikki Haley rallied supporters in Myrtle Beach yesterday evening. This as her battle with frontrunner Donald Trump for the Republican nomination heads to South Carolina for Saturday's primary. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us more. During her Thursday night campaign rally, Haley was briefly interrupted by protesters while addressing the crowd. Don't get upset when you see protesters like that because my husband and a lot of men and women in the military sacrifice every day for his right to be able to do that. Haley hammered away at the age of both President Biden and former President Trump, saying the U.S. can do better than two 80-year-old candidates. We all know people over 75 that can run circles around us. And then we know Joe Biden. A loss for Haley in her home state would deal a big blow to her already long odds. This after Trump swept contests in Iowa and New Hampshire. The former president has a commanding lead in state polls. She's governor, but people don't like her too much, and she's hurting the party. But Haley has vowed to press on regardless of Saturday's outcome. I am not going anywhere. Some prominent Republicans, including Congressman Byron Donalds, have called on Haley to drop out. At this point, it doesn't matter. That's what I hope. Everybody knows this thing is over. Uh, she should. I think that's what's best for the party um, overall. Senator Tim Scott voted early in the South Carolina primary on Thursday. The senator has been enthusiastically stumping for Trump in his home state ahead of Saturday's primary. 
Charleston resident and business owner Autumn Galvez says Trump has proven his mettle by continuing to battle despite multiple court cases against him. I think he just has this big effect on Americans. I feel like he just stands up and fights for us no matter what. I think for Derek Zito, Haley's main appeal besides her youth is that she's not Trump. You know, I don't agree with all of her policies, but I would rather see her than either Trump or Biden, to be honest. The latest Real Clear polling averages show Trump with a 25-point lead over Haley in South Carolina. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And joining us ahead at tomorrow's to look at tomorrow's primary, we have Republican strategist and former Trump Advisory Board member Jason Meister. Jason, welcome. Great to have you with us. Now, Trump is expected to win again in South Carolina. Who are Haley's supporters likely to vote for, would you say, in a Biden-Trump matchup? Uh, Democrats. Democrats who, who are who her voters are, are and her supporters are going to vote for. Uh, look, she's going to get absolutely crushed tomorrow night, Nikki Haley, by Donald Trump in her home state. She's lost 149 of 151 counties that have already voted thus far in the Republican primary. Uh, the CCP supports her. The CIA supports her. She is not going to be the nominee. And I, I believe that she's really almost, only in this race still for two main reasons. One, the, uh, she's preventing Donald Trump from receiving RNC campaign dollars to go after Joe Biden in the general election. And two, she's preventing Donald Trump from, from receiving White House uh, briefings as the presumptive, presumptive Republican nominee. Wow. And what, what are the effects of this, especially the last one that you mentioned here? Look, it's helping Democrats. Nikki Haley is really a, a, a prop of the Democratic Party. The Democrats are running her campaign. She has Democrat donors that are supporting her campaign. They're essentially using her so that he has to continue to use his campaign dollars in a primary as opposed to using them in a general election against Joe Biden. And yet, you know, I mean, she's Trump is also facing various legal battles, which may, you know, may add may add complexity to whether he can run right in the end. So she's she's sticking around potentially for that as well. Um, Considering this aspect for Trump and Biden being pretty shaky in the polls and questions about his age, do they have reasons to worry about her potentially swooping in or somebody else like RFK Jr.? No, I don't believe so. I actually believe that the Democrats' lawfare is essentially political rocket fuel for Donald Trump. Every time you see a case being brought against Donald Trump, his poll numbers go up and spike because this is completely un-American, what we're witnessing right now. In many ways, uh, I've said this many times, Donald Trump's success against the Marxist Democrats who are using these illegal lawfare against him, this unconstitutional lawfare in places like New York and Georgia and elsewhere, um, his, his success against those fraudulent cases really is tied to the success of the fabric of our nation because it's so un-American. So I believe that Donald Trump will become the presumptive uh, Republican nominee, and I believe he will become the 47th president of the United States of America. And we did see a bit of a indication here, possibly about Republican sentiment at, at this time. Trump's biggest donor recently gave $5 million to RFK Jr.'s campaign. What do you think that could indicate, if anything? 
I don't think it indicates much. Look, I think RFK Jr. serves an important role in this general uh, in this primary election, which is to remind Democrats of what they once stood for. He's anti-war. Uh, he's anti-mandates. Uh, he's very much criticized the vaccine mandates, etc. But I don't think he really makes moves the needle one way or the other. So I'm not really concerned about any kind of donations that are being made to him. At the end of the day, this is going to be uh, uh, Donald Trump's going to take the Republican nominee. And again, I think he's going to become the 47th president of the United States. All right. Thank you so much, Jason Meister, Republican strategist and former thank Trump you. advisory board member. Thank you. And staying with the South Carolina primary, some analysts say it will be Haley's last stand despite her vow to stay in the race through Super Tuesday. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on what voters are saying. Danielle Dantzler is an IT manager. The Charleston resident says she's voting for Haley. I think it's important that we have someone from South Carolina so that we can maybe get a little more attention on the national stage. Um, I like her platform. I don't agree with all of it, but I think the couple things that we disagree upon, we can agree to disagree. Autumn Galvez is the owner of a body products business. She's leaning toward Trump. Trump will probably be like the primary pick for the Republican Party. I think he just has this big effect on Americans. I feel like he just stands up and fights for us no matter what. I think he's kind of proven that no matter how much backlash he's gotten. Derek Zito says he won't vote for Trump no matter who he's running against. But uh, the only reason why I would go out and vote is because I think Donald Trump is a threat to everything and everybody and uh, anyone but him. And if it comes down to him and Biden, it would be Biden. If it comes down to Haley and Biden, it would be Haley. As the day gets closer, many voters are voicing concerns about specific issues and priorities. Lisa Karstarfin is an attorney. She's skeptical about Haley's stance on abortion. Um, well, Nikki Haley's a woman, um, although I don't necessarily think that she properly represents women's issues. Um, sometimes she does. She's much more reasonable than your regular um, current Republican slate. Um, but I think Joe Biden will probably represent how I feel better. Gabrielle Daniels, a nurse, says she'd like to see a woman president. My preferred candidate would be Nikki Haley, to be quite frank, because I really just want to see, I really want to see what would happen if a woman ran our country, considering that men have been running our country for, uh, since the beginning, really. Braylon Parker, a customer service representative, is on the fence. So yeah, I am undecided, and it is from lack of faith in the system. Um, I'm a double minority, I'm black, I'm a woman, so the candidates, you know, well, I guess no one's like chosen yet. A candidate losing in their home state can be a fatal blow to a campaign. Opinion polls show Trump far ahead, but Haley has vowed to press on regardless of Saturday's outcome. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And one political science professor in South Carolina says he expects Trump to win big, but believes the margin of victory could play an important role in Haley's campaign. NTD's Daniel Monahan has the details. Kirk Randazzo, political science professor at the University of South Carolina, says South Carolina has a very diverse set of voters. He says candidates have to tailor a message that can appeal to a broader range of the electorate. And that's why the state has been successful at predicting the eventual nominee of either party. And that makes its status in, in the primary queue incredibly important. Randazzo says Trump, leading by almost 30 points in recent polls, will most likely win the state. 
but Haley keeping the margin of victory to 10 or 15 points could bear fruit for her continued campaign. If she can keep it relatively close, I think that gives her enough momentum to keep the donations rolling in that will carry her to Super Tuesday. Otherwise, according to the professor, the pressure for her to drop out of the race will rise even more. Randazzo says Haley has presented a clear message that could catapult her to the White House were she to win the nomination. Because of all the issues and complaints with Joe Biden, his age, inflation, things along those lines, I think Nikki Haley is an incredibly solid candidate in the general election. 50 delegates to the Republican National Convention are up for grabs in South Carolina. Next up is Michigan, which will be held next Tuesday. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And with the South Carolina Republican primary coming up this weekend, NTD News will be covering all the action. We'll have a lot prepared for you, including special guests on the ground coverage and the data hub. Join Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer on The Nation Decides 2024, live this Saturday, February 24th at 6 p.m. And voters in Georgia are casting their ballots during the state's early voting period, which began on February 19th and ends March 8th. In the state's Republican primary, Trump is currently leading. According to data from the polling website 538, Trump has a substantial lead with around 81 percent, while Haley trails with 17 percent. But some early voters in Fulton County are not choosing the former president. Here's what they have to say. And we don't need Trump as president because there's nothing but chaos behind him. I think that Donald Trump has um, a lot of attention in the media and people don't understand um, his limitations. And I think that it will undermine our position globally in almost every way. Um, it's important to get my vote out. Um, it's important to get the right president for the United States. A record meth bust at the border at U.S. Customs and Border Protection says officers seized 6.5 tons of methamphetamine valued at over $100 million. The agency says it's the largest meth seizure recorded at a port of entry. The seizure happened last week at the Camino Real International Bridge between Mexico and Texas. A CBP field operations officer referred tractor trailer for secondary inspection. The rig's manifest was for piglet drying agents. A spokesman for Homeland Security Investigations says the seizure kept the drugs from making it to Houston, saving an untold number of lives. And President Biden is facing challenges on immigration. He's trying to appeal to the Democrat voter base that's in favor of protecting illegal immigrants, while also courting others who want to reduce illegal crossings from Mexico. Biden took office in 2021, promising to reverse the immigration policies of former Republican President Donald Trump, but has since toughened his own approach. That could dampen enthusiasm among more liberal Democratic voters. Trump and other Republicans support stricter border controls and have criticized Biden's policies as overly lenient. The issue is a crucial one in the battleground state of Nevada. Nearly a third of the state's more than three million residents are Hispanic. Vote tallies show Biden narrowly bested Trump in Nevada in 2020 with the help of Latino voters. But polls currently show Trump with an edge in the state. Coming up, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu presents his post-war plan for Gaza. Find out more about his long-term goals for the region. And Hunter Biden is set to testify before Congress soon. Find out what lawmakers are expected to ask him and when the deposition is scheduled.
Public schools in Chicago will no longer have police officers next year. The city's Board of Education voted unanimously to approve the plan. What supporters and opponents are saying? More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. And more updates on the Israel-Hamas war. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has presented his first official plan for Gaza, prepared for after the war ends. Netanyahu presented the proposal to Israel's security cabinet. It will begin discussions on the issue. His plan outlines that Israel will keep security control over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Netanyahu says the reconstruction of Gaza depends on demilitarizing and de-radicalizing the territory. He lists it as one of his medium-term goals. In the long term, Netanyahu rejects the unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. He says a settlement with the Palestinians will only be achieved through direct negotiations between the two sides. Other parts of the plan include keeping an Israeli presence on the Rafah border, between, crossing between Gaza and Egypt, and shutting down the UN-Palestinian refugee agency, UNRWA. And in the West Bank, the Israeli military said its troops killed a terrorist in a drone strike late Thursday. The person was a member of the Islamic Jihad terrorist group. He was staying at the Janin refugee camp. The Israeli military said the terrorist was about to carry out a shooting attack. He was killed while in his car. The military also said that the person was previously involved in several shooting attacks targeting Israeli settlements and army posts. And President Biden has announced more than 500 new sanctions against Russia. That's as the war in Ukraine enters its third year and in the wake of opposition figure Alexei Navalny's death. Biden said the sanctions target those involved in Navalny's imprisonment and Russia's financial sector, defense industry and procurement networks. Russia's Russian President Vladimir Putin, who's already sanctioned, isn't directly targeted this time. The U.S. is also imposing export restrictions on around 100 entities supporting Russia's military efforts. The sanctions package is part of the administration's ongoing efforts to limit the Kremlin's revenues and hamper Moscow's ability to source materials for its war. The move is taken in partnership with other countries. The U.K. yesterday announced sanctions on more than 50 individuals and entities. The European Union on Wednesday approved its own package of sweeping sanctions, banning nearly 200 entities and individuals accused of aiding Moscow. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warns of dire consequences if his country is left without aid from the U.S. He told Fox News that other countries in Europe would also be affected. It's tragedy. It will be tragedy for all of us, not only for Ukraine, not only for Ukrainians, for all Europe. And you will see that they will go. Putin will never stay, will never stop. He will go through Eastern Europe. Uh, because he wants it. The Senate recently passed a $95 billion foreign aid package that includes $60 billion for Kyiv, but it's facing opposition from House Republican leadership over the lack of border security measures. Zelensky says he's spoke with President Biden and Congress members about Ukraine's need for high-range weapons. He says they all understand that such weapons would help Ukraine significantly in its fight against Russia. This comes as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is leading a delegation of senators to Ukraine today. Schumer says the delegation of Democrats want to show Ukraine, NATO and Europe that they have America's support. Schumer said once the senators return to D.C., he'll pressure House Speaker Mike Johnson to bring the aid bill for a vote. And as the war enters its third year this Saturday, here's a look back at major events that have happened so far. 
In the days prior to February 24th, 2022, uncertainty was in the air. Even as Russian troops massed along the border, many Ukrainians believed it was a bluff. Everyone is worried now, everyone is worried, but I don't think there will be a full-scale offensive. I don't think they will reach Kiev for sure. Then the bombshell. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a special military operation to demilitarize Ukraine. Russia had invaded Ukraine. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed his nation and called on support from allies. A minute ago, I had a phone call with President Biden. The United States of America has already started to gather international support. The army is working. The whole security and defense sector is working. The U.S. and other Western countries ramped up their sanctions against Russia. Now, it's going to be up to President Putin to decide, ultimately, how much cost he's willing to bear. Over the next few weeks, Russia hit Ukraine with its full force. One after another, Russia captured Ukrainian towns until they were almost upon Kyiv. Footage from Ukraine's western border from that time shows thousands of civilians fleeing the country. In March 2022 alone, President Biden announced nearly $1 billion in security aid to Ukraine. As the war dragged on, it became clear taking Ukraine would not be easy for Russia. After repelling the initial Russian invasion, Ukraine launched a counteroffensive in August 2022, taking back many of the villages in the south that Russia had captured. On September 21, 2022, Putin announced a partial military draft for Russian citizens, the first such mobilization since World War II, signaling a major escalation in the war. Protesters demonstrated against the draft in various parts of the country, met by police crackdowns. The European Parliament declared Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. The Biden administration announced an additional $400 million in military aid. Ukrainian troops entered the city of Kherson, bringing it back into Ukrainian control for the first time since March. As 2023 rolled around, fighting seemed to be at a stalemate. For months, Ukraine and Russia both tried to gain ground. In early June, Ukraine launched another major counteroffensive. Then a crisis for Russia. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Russian mercenary Wagner Group, started criticizing the Russian leadership. On June 23, he led an armed rebellion against the Kremlin. They got as far as 200 miles from Moscow. Putin subdued the rebellion by the next day. Prigozhin was promised safe passage to Belarus. Exactly two months later, Prigozhin and other senior Wagner leaders were killed in a plane crash. On August 24th, Ukraine's military conducted an operation into Crimea. The peninsula had been under Russian control since 2014. Russia said they were repelling drone attacks around the country. But by November, the conflict appeared to be in another stalemate. Russia was once again shelling Kherson, which had been back in Kyiv's control for barely a year. As winter came around, Russia made another push into Ukraine. The new year 2024 saw strikes on Ukrainian cities, killing six and injuring hundreds. In the U.S., aid to Ukraine started to run dry. Even now, Congress is in a stalemate of its own over more military assistance to Ukraine. Last week, one of Putin's biggest critics, Alexei Navalny, died in a Russian prison. Many blamed Putin for his death. For now, the war shows no signs of stopping. The conflict has claimed the lives of an estimated half a million people. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is visiting Argentina and meeting with the country's President Javier Malay today. This makes Blinken the most senior U.S. official to meet Argentina, to visit Argentina since Malay was sworn in last December. Malay hosted Blinken at the presidential palace. The Argentine leader said at the meeting his country has decided to return to the side of the West. The two leaders discussed economic partnerships, critical minerals, and shared commitment to human rights and democracy. The meeting also touched on global security issues, including the Russia-Ukraine war and the Israel-Hamas war. 
Malay's administration has taken a similar approach to the U.S. in supporting Ukraine and Israel. Blinken also met with his Argentine counterpart. He said both meetings were very productive. Uh, at the top of our agenda uh, is finding ways to grow even more the trade and investment between our countries. The United States is already the leading provider of foreign direct investment in Argentina, but we see tremendous opportunity to do more. And the people of Argentina can count on us uh, as you work to stabilize your economy, to protect and lift up every segment of your society, to improve the business climate, to remove barriers to high standard job creating investment, can count on us to be a partner in those efforts. And Hunter Biden is set to testify before Congress. A committee staff member told NTD that the president's son is scheduled to appear before lawmakers as soon as next week, Wednesday. Hunter will testify before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committee. He's likely to face questions about his dealings with Ukrainian and Chinese companies while his father served as vice president. Lawmakers want to know what level of involvement then-Vice President Biden had in his son's business dealings. The deposition comes as House Republicans continue their impeachment investigation into President Biden. But Republican Congressman Scott Perry on Thursday raised doubts that the House would move to an impeachment vote. He said that there is evidence against Biden, but added it might be hard to impeach him with the slim majority in the House. President Biden has repeatedly denied having a role in his son's business dealings. And retired New York Police Department detective Mike Sapricone has been nominated to challenge New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand in November's general election. The 76-year-old beat out businessman Josh Eisen and athlete Cara Castronueva. According to Broome County GOP data, the former NYPD detective received some 80% of the weighted vote of GOP County chairs and state committee members. Following his NYPD career, Sapricone launched a successful international security company. He told Epic Times he's the best candidate because of his experience in law enforcement and business and his roots in New York. Chicago School Board has voted to remove police officers from the city's schools. The board made the decision Thursday after listening to supporters and opponents of law enforcement in education. Chicago police officers are currently stationed at 39 of the city's 91 public schools. Critics of law enforcement in Chicago schools argue that the policy discriminates against minority students. Supporters said their presence was necessary to keep schools safe. Chicago public schools say funding for school resources for school resource officers will go toward new initiatives. Those include restorative justice and youth intervention programs, professional development for staff, and de-escalation training. The Board of Education will consider the plan this summer. If approved, it will go into effect at the start of the 2024 school year. And the world's largest automaker has issued recalls for thousands of its pickup trucks and SUVs. Toyota says it's issuing a series of three recalls that'll affect around 280,000 vehicles. In some Toyota Tundras and Sequoias, the engine doesn't always fully engage while in neutral, which can cause a vehicle to creep forward um, inadvertently. That represents a significant safety issue and could lead to a potential accident. There's a second and smaller recall, about 19,000 vehicles for Toyota's electric Mirai and certain 2023 and 2024 Lexus LX 600 models. That involves a software issue that hinders rear view images for the driver. The third recall is for a few thousand Toyota Camry and Camry hybrids over concerns with the head restraints on the rear fold down seats.
Coming up, Chinese police working in Hawaii's closest neighbor in the Pacific. What they're doing and what else we know about this island nation. And a nationwide recall of more than 120,000 Chinese-made gun safes. That's over reports of faulty biometric locks. And in one case, a six-year-old child was able to gain access. And a British-born woman who joined the Islamic State stood before court today. She's appealing a decision to take away her British citizenship. More on the court's ruling in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Chinese police working on an island nation about 1,000 miles from Hawaii. Kiribati is a strategically important country and it's Hawaii's closest neighbor in the Pacific. The nation of 115,000 residents controls one of the biggest exclusive economic zones in the world. It also hosts a Japanese satellite tracking station. Kiribati officials told Reuters that Chinese police are working with local police there and assisting in a crime database program. The country hasn't publicly announced the policing deal with China. China has been making inroads into the Pacific region. Kiribati switched ties from Taiwan to Beijing in 2019 with the country's president encouraging Chinese investment in infrastructure. In 2022, Beijing signed a security pact with the Solomon Islands, another Pacific nation about two miles off the coast of Australia. And a recall of over 120,000 Chinese-made gun safes. The Consumer Product Safety Commission made the announcement Thursday. It came after reports that the safe's biometric lock feature failed and a six-year-old boy was able to get inside of one. The safes are sold by four companies, Bulldog Cases, Machir, MooTech, and AwSafe, through online marketplaces and company websites like Amazon, Walmart, and others. No injuries from the defect have been reported so far. The affected American companies advise customers to stop using the biometric feature immediately. They note that customers should only use the safe's physical key when storing firearms and contact them for free replacements. And Senator Marco Rubio is sounding the alarm on the danger of a possible Chinese cyber attack. He warned on social media that the widespread U.S. cell service outage yesterday is significantly smaller than what such an attack could do. Tens of thousands of people on Down Detector and elsewhere complained their AT&T or Cricket service was out on Thursday. AT&T, which owns Cricket, confirmed the outage. By the afternoon, the company stated that about 75% of its service was restored. Rubio said he doesn't know what caused the outage, but said it would be 100 times worse if China launched a cyber attack on America on the eve of a Taiwan invasion. The Republican senator says such an attack wouldn't just involve cell service, but would also affect power, water and bank systems. And staying in the region, the U.S. and South Korea are holding a joint military drill today. The goal is to shoot down incoming enemy missiles. The drill involved advanced F-35A stealth jets from both countries. The drill is an apparent response to a recent round of missile tests by North Korea. North Korea conducted six rounds of missile tests this year. Most of the tests involved cruise missiles. They can fly at a low altitude to overcome opponents' missile defenses. Analysts say North Korea aims to use cr cruise missiles to strike incoming U.S. aircraft carriers and U.S. military bases in Japan in the event of conflict. And now for shifting gears, we have some short headlines from the UK, Germany and other European countries. Poland will gain access to up to $148 billion in European Union funds.
This after the new administration in Poland began implementing judicial reform. The previous government in Warsaw was embroiled in a long-running spat with the EU over reforms of the country's courts. The EU blocked Poland's access to the funds as a result of the row and demanded Poland meet milestones on judicial independence to unfreeze it. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen made the announcement in Poland earlier today. Based on the reforms you have launched and the number of immediate steps you have taken on judicial independence, I have good news. Next week, the College will come forward with two decisions on European funds that are currently blocked for Poland. These decisions will free up to 137 billion euros for Poland. This is from Next Generation EU and it is from the Cohesion Funds. A British-born woman who joined the Islamic State in Syria lost an appeal today over the removal of her British citizenship. The British government took away her citizenship on national security grounds in 2019. That was shortly after she was found in a detention camp in Syria. She argues the decision was unlawful in part because British officials failed to properly consider whether she was a victim of human trafficking. The argument that was first rejected by a lower court in February last year. And, and the Court of Appeal in London rejected her appeal today. The woman flew to Syria in 2015 with two school friends to join the terror group. She was 15 years old. While there, she married an ISIS fighter. The European Union will base its new anti-money laundering authority in Frankfurt. Germany welcomed the decision today, saying the agency will help fight financial crimes across Europe. Eight other countries had applied to host the authority. Frankfurt won by far the most votes, with Madrid and Paris coming second and third. Without an EU authority to control dirty money, Brussels had previously relied on national regulators to enforce its rules, but member states did not always cooperate fully. Former Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz is on trial for perjury. The trial is entering the last day today. Kurtz had to leave office in 2021 after prosecutors placed him under investigation on suspicion of corruption. Kurtz, who then quit politics, denies any wrongdoing. The coalition he formed remains in power. A verdict could be reached soon and a criminal conviction could kill any chance he has of returning to politics. At least five people are dead and over a dozen missing after a fire in Spain. The fire engulfed two residential buildings in Valencia yesterday. Residents fled onto balconies where some were rescued by firefighters. Spanish soldiers were also deployed and medics set up a large tent to help injured people on the scene. The cause of the fire was not immediately known. News reports said it might have spread rapidly due to materials used in the building's structure. And turning to Sydney, Australia, a police officer was charged on Friday for the alleged murder of two young men, missing for almost a week. Their bodies have yet to be found. The policeman was arrested Friday morning after walking into a police station in the beachside suburb of Bondi. Police allege he killed couple Luke Davies and Jesse Baird sometime on Monday. Authorities say he rented a white van that evening to dispose of their bodies. Police established a crime scene at Baird's home where they discovered a single bullet and a large amount of blood. The officer's gun matched the bullet from the crime scene. Baird was a former TV presenter with Network 10. His partner Davies was a Qantas flight attendant. Coming up, 
For the first time ever, a sports video game is offering college athletes money for their name, image, and likeness instead of the NCAA. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss. And are 24-hour diners a thing of the past, even after the pandemic? We talked to an ambitious French restaurateur who is trying to bring back the round-the-clock dining culture. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, plenty to discuss today, but let's start with college football, where a popular football video game is now offering more than 10,000 name image likeness deals to yeah, current players to be part of the game. What's the significance of this? Well, for one, this is the first known college sports video game to offer the players in it money for their name, image, and likeness. Previously, the money actually went to the NCAA instead. It was actually their rule that players couldn't profit off of their name, image, likeness, also known as NIL. Now, this game is called EA Sports College Football 25, and the players who accept the deal get 600 bucks plus a copy of the game and possibly some more earnings down the road, you know, depending on how well the sales of the game go. Plus, if they promote it, too, they can make some more money. Now, this is also interesting because it was an earlier version of a college sports basketball game by EA Sports. This is back in the 90s. That really started this whole NIL business because one of the players featured in it sued to be paid for his participation in the game. That lawsuit really helped pave the way for players today to be paid for their, their NIL deals, which has really changed college sports. It's t though it's taken 25 to 30 years, it's some progress anyway. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure some um, players out there are quite happy about this. Yeah, and rich. Mm. Yeah. Uh, now, elsewhere in college football, there's been a lot of news this week about the expanded 12-team playoffs coming up. But it begs the question of why they're already looking to expand again. Yeah, that was my question, too. I would say the money, for one thing. I mean, ESPN is in talks with them to extend this deal for six years reportedly between seven and a half and eight billion dollars. I mean, that is obviously a lot of money. Now, what's being discussed is adding two more teams to make it 14. I mean, it seems like an unusual number to me. Why don't I just have 16 instead to have four even rounds? But it, I, I would stop at 16 anyway. Of course, we haven't done the 12-team playoff yet, like you said. In any case, another reported reason is actually to guarantee the SEC and Big Ten, which really are the super conferences now as far as football, an automatic bid for each. Now, personally, I don't like that. If they're really great football conferences, they'll get the majority of the at-large bids anyway. So it seems silly that they need this, you know, written in stone for them. And moving on to golf news, Tiger Woods' son, Charlie, who's just 15, was bidding to enter a PGA tournament, but he came up short yesterday. Had he qualified, would that have put him ahead of his father? You know, as far as a career timeline, yeah, it actually would have. Tiger qualified for his first PGA event when he was 16 years old. Charlie is 15, as you said. Now, that was a pre-qualifier yesterday that his son, Charlie, had he made the top five there, he would have advanced to Monday's qualifier. The top four players there advanced to the actual PGA event. Now, Tiger Woods' career didn't quite take off as a 16-year-old. It was actually when he went to Stanford, won the NCAA champion, championship there, and also being the first, weight, first ever to win three straight U.S. amateur titles that he really made a name for himself. Uh, now he's maybe the best to ever play golf. But no one age, at age 15 or 16, of course, is a finished product. But it'll be interesting to see you know, how Charlie does going forward. All right. Thank you, Dave. Good to see you as always. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Dave. And today on Strong Mind and Body, we explore the unexpected joys of thinking less. Join us as we look at how intuition can lead to a happier, calmer life. Here's Gina Marie.
think less? That can't be right, can it? Or even possible. We are taught from a young age that the key to a better life is to use our brains more and to develop stronger reasoning skills. But what if I told you that the path to happier and calmer days could be in letting go of the need for hyper-rationality? You are probably better off leaning into the intuition that you've developed over a lifetime of living. Here are some of the benefits you can enjoy from thinking less. Let's start with number one, wisdom. Thinking less allows you to tap into a deeper type of knowledge than logic alone. Often we know something in our gut way before our brain can articulate the reasons. Number two, engagement. When we think less, we live more in the moment. Let's face it, deep thinking pulls us out of the flow of everyday life. And overthinking makes it even worse. It makes you feel like real life is drifting by while you are lost in your thoughts. Number three, calm. Remember that the longer you toss around a decision in your brain, the less certain you'll become and the more stressed you'll feel. Living intuitively means humbly admitting that you don't know everything. Letting go of trying to control life without thinking can give us a sense of calm. Number four, inspiration. Thinking tends to oversimplify the complex reality of life. You might imagine that there are only two options and that you have to choose between them. In fact, there are far more options and shades to choice than you ever considered. And finally, number five, ease. Living with less internal debate can lift a weight off your chest. Constantly thinking is an exhausting state to live in. Your brain never rests and you never feel completely at ease. When you realize you don't have to live like that anymore, you'll feel as light as a feather. Are 24-hour diners a thing of the past? Many across the country are ending late-night hours. The pandemic put pressure on every restaurant. This forced 24-hour diners in particular to forsake their namesake. Despite this, an ambitious French restaurateur is opening one. I spoke with him at his new place in New York City. Um, the 24-hour uh, itself was really, really challenged during, uh, during COVID and of course during COVID, but mostly in the transition of reopening after COVID, where all those regulations was really, really confusing for people, really confusing for restaurateurs and really confusing for, for the, the patron as well. In the spring of 2021, the National Restaurant Association estimated 90,000 restaurants closed during the pandemic. Constantly shifting government regulations and inflationary pressure forced restaurants to cut back, and 24-hour diners cut back on their hours. Despite this, restaurateur Philippe Olivier Bondon sees opportunity where others see loss. Bondon wants to bring 24-hour diner culture back to New York after the COVID pandemic curbed the tradition. Cafeteria, a famed 24-hour restaurant in Chelsea, ended late-night hours during the pandemic. Bondon believes COVID was just a bump in the road for restaurants like these. He's opening Diner 24 with 24-hour service at 3rd Avenue and 22nd Street in Manhattan early this year. I really believe that it's something that the New Yorkers need and start realizing now, like while after uh, the end of COVID, even when we still feel that things are coming back to normal, even though it's back to normal, but schedules are still, still, um, still different from, from before. The needs of the, the, the needs of 24 hours in New York is, is coming back. Mm. People what? realize it. This French restaurateur got his start managing a high-end restaurant on Paris's Champs-Élysées. He went on to start multiple successful restaurants across France and the U.S., and his co-founders include the likes of the Koch brothers. He's now turning his sights to one of America's quintessential dining experiences, the 24-hour diner. It's really associated to some sort of nostalgia 
in the American culture and some uh, almost it's almost charming on on how people approach diners and it's comfort associated to comfort food associated to meeting people completely stress-free in, in how you're gonna decide to eat or come for a coffee and, and, and read your newspaper for an hour. Bondon's not just bringing back 24-hour service, he also wants to elevate it. His inspiration is the Greek family restaurant experience classic to so many 24-hour diners, but he has a plan to refresh this hallmark of American culture for changing demographics. What's special here, uh, believe it or not, the, the classics. Um, by once again reinventing a little bit uh, the, the dishes, you can keep the traditionality of it and make sure that people are going to find what they're looking for by going to a diner, but also be surprised on the dishes themselves. We try to elevate uh, those classics. This is Chris Beers reporting for NTD News from New York City. The first U.S. moon landing since 1972. A spacecraft built and flown by Texas-based company Intuitive Machines landed near the south pole of the moon yesterday evening. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the lunar touchdown, the first ever achieved by the private sector. The six-legged robot lander, dubbed Odysseus, touched down at around 6.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Today, for the first time in more than a half century, the U.S. has returned to the moon. Ignition and liftoff. The landing, one day after the spacecraft reached lunar orbit and a week after its launch from Florida, was confirmed by signals beamed back nearly 240,000 miles to mission control. Mission director Tim Crane reacts. What we can confirm, without a doubt, is our equipment is on the surface of the moon and we are transmitting. Communication with the vehicle took several minutes to re-establish, and the initial signal was faint, leaving mission control uncertain as to the precise condition and position of the lander. The spacecraft was not designed to provide live video of the event. Touchdown came after an 11th hour glitch with the spacecraft's autonomous navigation system that required engineers on the ground to employ a workaround solution. They had to deploy an experimental instrument from NASA, which was already on board. Three, two, one, engine ignition. Odysseus lifted off on February 15th atop a two-stage Falcon 9 rocket flown by Elon Musk's SpaceX. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson called Odysseus taking the moon a triumph. Congratulations to everyone involved in this great and daring quest at Intuitive Machines, SpaceX, and right here at NASA. The vehicle is carrying a suite of scientific instruments and technology demonstrations for NASA and several commercial customers. The equipment is designed to operate for seven days on solar energy before the sun sets over the polar landing site. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories on Monday.